All right, uh, let me ask you uh, to open up your Bibles. Would you open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10? That is where we're going to be this morning. Um, who's dialed into March Madness? Really quickly, show of hands. Anybody watching March Madness? Uh, a few of you guys, all right? Uh, it's probably more that you're just too tired to raise your hand. But um, I love this time of year, all right, for a couple of reasons. Um, it, it's, it's, it makes you watch games that you just ordinarily wouldn't care anything about. Um, I love the Cinderella stories, the bracket busters, all those kind of things. Um, I love basketball. I played basketball from kindergarten through college, and uh, it was just part of who I am. As I played basketball for a very long time, I was a part of many, many pregame, midgame, halftime motivational speeches from many, many different coaches. And uh, so I, I've heard them all, like a bunch of those. But I think one of the ones that I want to I remind you of today, one of, probably one of the greatest ones I heard uh, was a, a mid-game motivational speech by defensive coordinator Yost uh, from Remember the Titans. All right, if you remember that movie, you're dialed in, you have a uh, defensive coordinator, he's rallying the defense together. They are getting pummeled by the opposing team, but they're really getting pummeled by the bigoting referees, right? They're, they're calling the game, they're busting up. Yost calls the, the defense into huddle, and he, he says, defense on me, right? I want you to hear this from me. I, I want you to know that I don't want them to gain another yard. You blitz all night. But if one of you lets them by the line of scrimmage, I'm taking every single one of you out of here. I want this team to remember forever the night that they played the Titans. Right? We see that movie. It gets amped up. It's like, I'm going to put the pads on, run on a field. Like, I would go play for that guy. Uh, that's the power of motivational speeches in regards to athletics. There's this, it gets the team, the individual, it rallies them together uh, to remember the plan, to stay the course, and to get them to, to accomplish things that they never, ever, ever thought that they would be able to do on their own. Motivational speeches are powerful. That is exactly what we're going to see today in Revelation chapter 10. God's motivational speech to his team, the redeemed church, in the midst of opposing tribulation and judgments that are unfolding in this book. Uh, this dramatic interlude or pause is something that he did back in the sealed judgments. If you were part of that with us, you'll remember between the sixth and seventh sealed judgments, God did the very same thing. There was this dramatic interlude, pep talk, pause, whatever you want to call it, where he got them together. And he says, I know it looks like it's crazy. I know the tribulation is, is pressing in, but I want you to know something. You are sealed by God. You are a God-possessed one. You are a God-protected one. So I'm encouraging you and I'm challenging you to stand up and stay strong. That's what he did in the seals. And then here today in the trumpets, he does the very same thing. Same set of judgments from a different angle. Between six and seven, he gives this dramatic interlude, this pause once again, this motivational speech to Christians who are enduring tribulation, and he encourages them. He challenges them, and he's going to clearly do that for us today. Now, this book... If you've been a part of this book unfolding, it seems that week in and week out, these, these judgments are just devastating. I mean, they are uncomfortable, they're powerful. To the unbeliever, that's exactly what they are. They are very, very devastating. They, they cause a lot of intimidation 
for the unbeliever. But remember the purpose of this book, Revelation 1.3. This book was to be a blessing for the Christian. Not to confuse the Christian, not to scare the saints, but to give us a great blessing. So if anyone's ever told you, I don't need to mess with Revelation, it's too confusing, I don't really need to chase that down. No, you're missing out on the blessing. And the blessing of this book is those who read it aloud and keep the prophecy and keep the words of the book, they will receive blessing. And the blessing is this, encouragement, hope, security in the midst of tribulation that we're all facing today, all right? So we're gonna see how chapter 10, this motivational speech, how is God going to do that uh, with us? And let's read together chapter 10. I'm gonna read through the whole chapter and then we're gonna go back and look at it together. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. One of the rules of interpretation, the lenses that we look at to try to understand what's happening here, is we first must go back to understanding that this book was written to first century Christians first, not 21st century. It does apply to us, but let's, we have to go back to the writing, the context of what he's writing to there in the first century church in Asia Minor so we can understand what it means for us today. So as we go back, we have to look at the cultural context that he's writing this in. The first century Christian was living in the mouth of the monster who is Rome, a godless, godless place, a place where uh, if you did not drink the cultural Kool-Aid, you would be canceled and blacklisted, literally, right? And their, their version of canceling and back, uh, being blacklisted was being boiled, beheaded, and buried. So if you suppressed your beliefs about Jesus, if you denied the word of God, if you stood in silence, right, and you didn't oppose the things that were happening, you were going to face a lot of opposition, a lot of judgment. In fact, they sat around and said, 
hey, it looks like the bad guys are winning. So Revelation 10 steps in and says, although it looks like the bad guys are winning, in fact, there is a good God who's already won the battle that you're in. So it would have spoke much, much confidence into them today as we look at us in 21st century Rome, America, very godless, right? And we've seen the degradation over the past 2,000 years, falling away from God over and over again. The judgments are intensifying. We've talked about some of those things here that give us evidence of that in our world. We're talking about how today the racial and social tensions are as high as they were in the 60s. The world's theory, critical race theory, is trying to divide everyone up in the world into factions based upon their race, their gender, and their sexuality. They're causing division in the world through their hashtags and their social media movements. They're not helping the country unite. They're dividing it all the more. Drug addiction man, and mental illness are on a ridiculous pace of skyrocketing in the world today. You know that the amount of children born in fatherless homes increases by one million every single year. Our culture values whales and dogs more than unborn babies. Our religious liberties that we have enjoyed over the past whatever hundred years or so are soon going to be neutered, whereas when I get up to speak on Sunday in the pulpit, that my words will be considered hate speech. What will follow will be fines, maybe imprisonment, which is why I need you to keep tithing, right, for that reason. (laughs) Bail me out. In a short time, church, our girls, our daughters, will go to public schools and be told they have to share a bathroom with boys who are identifying as girls. I could go on and on about these things. There's a couple more. Man, these are powerful. I I share these with you because these are reality. Do you know right now in several states that a child that is in the fostering system, if that child identifies as another gender than its God-given gender that the foster parents are required by law to affirm that gender transformation and to support and encourage it regardless of what the bio parents believe. And it's, it's, a, it's just, we can, like I said, we could go on and on. We talk about, man, what is the world of our children going to grow up into? What's the, their grandchildren? And so on and so on. We can get into that all day long. But the question is this. How do we... Christians stand in hostility and a world of unpopularity of following Jesus. How do we stand strong right now? It's just like the first century church. Revelation 10 comes in and it gives us this picture of who God is. That's what we're going to see here in this text. He gives us this threefold motivational speech. I see three things in these 11 verses of how he wants to encourage us, but also to challenge us. Here's the first three things, all right? The first one is to be confident in a sovereign God. 
My notes say be confident in a big God. You can write whatever you want to there. I think there's a picture here we're seeing that we can be confident in a very, very big God. After the sixth trumpet, we see here that this mighty angel fell down and came to the earth. The question is, is who's this mighty angel? There's been a lot of debate over that, a lot of conversations regarding. Some people say, well, this is a, another mighty angel, like the mighty angel we saw in chapter 5. Others would say, this mighty angel is one like Gabriel, who was given these godlike powers and majesty and might to give this vision here. I would contend, my belief, my opinion, is that this is not just some ordinary angel in might and power. I believe that this angel is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself for a few reasons. The first one is, in the Old Testament, uh, when a pre-incarnate Jesus revealed himself, came on the scene in the Old Testament as what is called a Christophany, appearance of Christ, he was referred to as an angel of the Lord. It's the first reason. Second reason here is he is robed in a cloud. Cloud, if you know your Old Testament history, that many times a cloud would come in the presence of God. God would come in the presence of a cloud as he guided Israel by day. So he's robed in a cloud. We see a rainbow pictured here. A rainbow covers him. We saw a rainbow, the vision of Jesus with the appearance of a rainbow around the throne early in Revelation chapter 4. Rainbow represents the steadfast covenant of God. By the way, if you ever want to know what a rainbow means, it's God's rainbow. It means I'm a faithful God. I keep my promises. That's the purpose of this. Another reason we see here is that the other description is we see that his face was bright like the sun. That is the same exact description we saw of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.16. Radiance of the image of God. He also had legs like a pillar of fire. Let's go back Old Testament again. Remember, one of the forms that God led the Israelites was through a pillars of fire by night. Pillars of fire. We also saw early in Revelation that he had feet like burnished bronze. Here, So he has these feet that represent strength. And power, and on his feet, this picture here is that he's, he's got one foot on the sea. He's got one foot on the land. He's literally straddling the entire universe like this colossus. The feet are standing, and everything under it are under his power and his might. He's straddling the whole universe. This is a big, big God. Another reason it's Jesus here is is we see that he has a scroll in his hand. Now, it says little scroll here. We don't get caught up in those words there, but we know that Jesus had the scroll earlier in the book of Revelation. We studied that, so I believe that this is Jesus Christ. He also roars like a lion. In Revelation 10, 3, Jesus roars like a lion. So this roar is Jesus saying, I'm the king of all kings of all jungles. I'm the king of kings. I am the reigning king. And he lets out this mighty, mighty roar that can be heard throughout the universe. God is giving us a picture, trying to let John know, hey, man, I know it looks like you're getting pummeled, man. But I want you to know 
John, I want you to know, Creek, that you don't serve a little God. It's not a localized deity. He's not just one way of several ways. No, he wants us to know that we serve and can be confident in a very, very big God. Now, he also goes on, as this mighty angel sounds, we have seven thunders that roar. It says seven thunders sounded. So what is that about? Let's stop here for a minute. Because what happens is he hears these thunders, and then John grabs his pen because he's going to write down the record of the seven thunders. But before he gets pen to paper, God says, hey, hold on now, seal that thing up. Yeah, put your pen down, John. You're not going to write about the seven thunders. Although Leviticus 26 talked about another form of judgments. Maybe this is, it probably is, but we don't get the information behind here. He says, this is going to remain a mystery to you. You don't need to know this. It's not necessary. And it's been said that when God keeps his holy mouth shut on a matter, that it's best that we keep our mouth shut as well. So let's just let him be silent. We don't need to know these things. It's a mystery of God. And then this mighty angel goes on in verse 5, and he raises his hand and takes an oath as if he were in a court of law. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? So that's what Jesus is doing. He's swearing an allegiance to who? Who is he swearing allegiance to? The one who lives forever. God the Father. This is a, uh, a reference back to a picture we saw in Daniel 12. Daniel 12 is a book, or the entire book of Daniel is a book about prophecy. But specifically in Daniel 12, God gave Daniel a vision of an angel standing up, taking an oath. And he, what he was doing is he was swearing that the end of the, of the entire world, Daniel was looking into futuristic views of the end of the world. And here what's happening right now, what Daniel prophesied about 700 years ago, now is happening it's unfolding. As right before the seventh trumpet sounds, Jesus is saying, this is the end of the world. Daniel prophesied about it 700 years ago. Now it's happening. The end is here. The end times is here. We don't know the hour of the day, but we do know we are in the end times right now. So what's the point of all this? What is the main thing that God wants us to know about this specific passage right here? When God gives a motivational speech to the church in the midst of tribulation, he doesn't start out by telling us how awesome we are. He doesn't start out with a strategy to build our self confidence starts out by giving us a God confidence don't look at you he's not like saying look at you look within you you've worked really hard you're better than those people you can do this just look in the mirror and tell yourself you're awesome no he says look at me Get a glimpse of me. That is where you will find your encouragement. That's where you'll find your hope and your security when you look at me. 
He's wanting them to know that they are being represented by something greater than they are. I'll use a sports analogy to to try to explain this a little bit. If you ever played sports before, you'll know that really, really good coaches and really, really good programs, uh, they have this mantra that they want the players on the team to know that they are not playing for the name on the back of the jersey, but they're playing for their school. Not for their own glory, but for the glory of the school. You're a, you're a Commodore, you're a Crimson Tide, you're a Bulldog, you're a Vol, whatever it is. You don't play for the name on the back of your jersey. You play for something greater. That's what's happening here. God is saying, hey, you ain't playing for the name on the back of your jersey, John. There's someone else behind you. It's me. You're represented by me, a big, huge, mighty God. And you can know that it's going to be okay. What Revelation 10 addresses is the greatest need for the church today. The greatest need for the church today is to have a great, big vision of a great, big God. You know what? You know what we really don't have to have here? We really don't have to have padded seats. We really don't have to have lights hanging down from behind me. We don't really need a drum kit. We don't have to have a guitar right there. We don't have to have great t-shirts at the creek. We don't have to have great VBS, great student camp, great programs. We don't really have to have all those. Dare I even need to say we don't even have to have great coffee. <laughs> I went there, right? <laughs> do those things help us in the kingdom of God? Sure they do. But that's not the greatest need of the church. Greatest need of church today is to have a great big vision of a great big God. That's what you need every single week. That's what you need me to do every single week. It's what you pay me to do, really. It's that we would give you a great big vision of a great big God, powerful, mighty, sovereign, lavishing with love and grace and mercy. It's what you need. So today, my encouragement would be is if you were someone, we're in the midst of the tribulation. That's what we've talked about. It's not a futuristic thing. We're in the middle of it right now. If you were someone who's who's losing the battle in the tribulation and you are overrun the onslaught of fear and anxiety and doubt over things like fear of death, fear of getting sick, fear of what will happen to loved ones if they get into a car accident, fear of what's going to happen to my kids and the future of my children. What's going to happen if I lose my job if I talk about Jesus? Or maybe your fear and anxiety is more about the global aspects of the country. You're fearing the degradation of America. All religious liberties are being stolen away. There's all these conspiracy theories that happen in the world. Doubt, despair, discouragement. If that is describing your countenance in the middle of the tribulation, it can only be attributed to one thing. You are too busy looking at you, your life, your world, and not looking at your God enough. 
That's it. I can't get anywhere around that anymore. Will we face anxiety? Absolutely. But how do you drive out the fears? You look at a big God. That's how you do it. How do we do that? How do we expand our view of God and have our confidence in this big God? Well, he tells us how to actually do that. He tells us by doing this. Number two, be nourished by eating God's word. I didn't just come up with that. It's what he told John to do. Three times in this text, we're told that there is a scroll. Now, one time I said it's referred to as a little scroll. Other times it's a scroll. Don't get caught up in the confusion. Why is it called little here? I believe this scroll represents the word of God, the very mouth, words, breathed out scripture. This is the Bible here. And this is where God is turning John to for him to have this confidence in this big God. Now, notice what he doesn't tell John. John, man, I need you to get yourself a good devotional verse. One one a day will be good. I, I need you to dial in. There's a really good sermon online, John. You really need to dial in and look at that because it will really help you in these troubled times. He doesn't even say, go to church and listen to your pastor preach the word. And he doesn't even say, John, just read the word. He says, take it and eat it. Now, we know that's not literal. He did not tell John to grab a physical scroll and consume it, right? It's not what he's doing. It's a symbolic letter. But what he's telling John is, John, you, got to, you have to ingest this stuff. You've got to drink it. You've got to eat it. You've got to dwell in it. It's got to get in you and not just in here. It's got to get into your bones. It's got to get into your blood. And when you do that, John, by the way, some of it will taste sweet to your lips like honey. But some of it is going to cause you some spiritual indigestion. That's what he's going to do here. He tells us that two things, that God's word is sweet. We know that God's word is sweet for the believer. Look at Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. When God saves a man or a woman, he gives them taste buds for his word. And they see this as sweet like honey. It's good. I need this. Uh, Psalm 119 goes on to say that his word is more valuable than gold. Sweeter than honey. Do you look at this as more valuable than gold, sweeter than honey? If you're in Christ, you do, because he gives you taste buds for his word. And some of it is easy to digest, right? Some of it's very easy to the, to the mouth as a taste. It's very soft on the palate. God's protection, his unconditional love for us. The coffee cup verses of Psalm 23, surely mercy, surely goodness shall follow me all of my days of my life. Like I can ingest that, all that sweetness all day long. God is into me. He's for me. He is protector. He is safe. Like I can drink those things pretty, pretty easily. They are sweet to the lips. But 
He says also here that his word is also bitter in the stomach. That sometimes it is difficult to digest. That's some hard words. It pronounces judgment on people who don't follow Jesus. Condemnation, real condemnation. Judgment on earth, but eternal judgment in hell. That could be a little bit difficult to swallow. And he, he promises, promises the Christian, hey, I'm going to take you through tribulation. I'm going to take you through suffering. I'm going to take you through persecution for my name's sake. That can be a bitter pill to swallow as well. Some people are offended by the bitterness of God trying to tell them how to live their lives, how to operate within the roles that he's given, or how to operate from a sexual uh, a nature, how to stay within the confines of husband and wife marriage, a monogamous relationship, how to not step outside of the boundaries of getting into sexual confusion and transgenderism and, man, whatever. Like, some of those things are bitter for people to comprehend and understand. Some people spit out very sweet words because they're bitter to the taste. Words like predestination, election, God's sovereignty. Man, the, the depths of Scripture, they're sweet. But you don't have a taste bud yet. You spit it out of your mouth, it would taste bitter to you. You know, there's some people... I, I, let me ask you a question. Let me just, let me just pause for a minute. Does this word, does this Bible, is it sweet to you or is it only bitter to you? Is it sweet to you? Is it only bitter? You know, Paul talked about a time in the church age where this word would be so bitter to people that they wouldn't want to hear it. They wouldn't want to hear Bible teaching expositionally through Scripture. Listen to what he said in 2 Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure the suffering, do the work of the evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Have people left our church before and walked on down the street to another church? Yeah, I'm sure they probably have. Some people don't want to hear the Bible. It's hard. It's bitter to them. So they go and they look for pastors in person or pastors online to tell them that they can have their best life right now. Their ears want to be tickled to tell how awesome they are, everything's going to get better, it's going to be good. And they won't endure sound teaching. Church, I want you to know something, that the, the church, and I even think here, as I, as I think, I'd like to think I know most of you, but I want you to know that the strongest, most committed, convictional Christians are the ones who take and eat the word. That's the ones. Uh, not people who are just more courageous than you. 
Not people who have more time on their hands to read the Bible. They're just not that busy. I'm a lot more busy than them. I don't know what their deal is. It's not people that have this awesome score on their personality test where they can go talk to people more than you. No, the the most strongest convictional Christians who will stand in this world are the ones who take and eat the word of God. And they will be able to stand as the world and its onslaught comes up against us right now. They'll be able to stand because they're standing on the word. But those who do not take and eat the word of God, those who do not stand on the word, they will bow to the world. You'll you'll bow. I promise you, the cultural conformity pressure, I'll lose friends, I'll lose a job, I, I can't go to church. They'll say, like, you will cave if you do not take and eat the word of God for yourself. Listen, if you think that you can get by in the world that's coming just from a sermon on Sunday, just from a YouTube pastor, just from a devotional verse on Facebook by scrolling through, oh, it's good. Listen, if you think you can survive on that, that is literally like running a marathon on a cotton candy diet. You'll never make it. You'll cave. You'll drift the moment that Christianity costs you something. And I don't want that to happen to any of you. This is why I tell you these things. Not so we can keep the seats filled, but that you can stand up in the world that's coming. And I want to just not tell you that. I want to help you do that because the reality is some of you are not doing this, okay? Let's just call it what it is. You're not doing it. You're biblically malnourished or you're biblically anorexic you don't read you don't take you don't eat but we want to help you do that i don't want to just do a drive-by guilting and say you don't read your bible i want to help you it's one of the reasons that i disciple a group of men on wednesday night because we're trying to teach them the word take and eat so then they can go out and lead their families to be convictional christians who stand on the word we have opportunities all over the place at this church for you to do that and we, Saturday mornings, we do some Bible study there. We have life groups that meet, that study the Bible. We have people that literally would say, I'll teach someone the Bible. All you have to do, listen, all you have to do is say, I need help. I don't understand it. It's complicated. I don't even know if I have the right Bible. It's confusing to me. I don't know what's going on. All you have to do is say, I need help. And then we'll do the rest. If you don't get help at this church, it's not on us. It's on you. So how do you do that? Real practically, that's the blue card. Connect, whatever you want to do. Check a box. I need help. I need somebody to teach me the Bible to help understand it. We'll get somebody with you. We'll get you in a group. We'll get you with a one-on-one. We'll do whatever we got to do because we are trying to get you ready for the onslaught of the world. We want you to stand on the word so you do not bow to the world. All right? Let's go to the last one. Now that we got this big vision of a big God, we're nourishing, we're eating God's word. Now, what do we do with it? Do we consume it for ourselves? We get fat and sassy and just coast on into salvation and all that good stuff? No, we don't do that. We share God's hard words to a hard world. Share God's hard words to a hard 
world. Where did I get that from? Verse 11, John was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So the angel says to John here, take and you eat. Now I need you to go back out. This is a recommissioning of John, so to speak. He'd already commissioned him, right? This is a recommissioning of John. Okay, John, all right, halftime speech, whatever, it's all over. Now to get back in the game, I need you to take this hard word to hard-hearted people. This is a, really, it's a reference back to Ezekiel 2.3 when Ezekiel was told to eat the word so that he could share the word to a hard-hearted Israelite people. And that's exactly what's happening here as he tells him to go do it. Yeah, it's hard, hard words. John, I need you to get back out there. I need you to take these hard words to a hard world full of hard-hearted people. But this is not just a recommissioning of John. This is a recommissioning to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. The commissioning happening in the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you've been commissioned, but this is your recommissioning here. He's saying, get back out there to the people in your homes, to your neighborhood, to the nations, to your schools, to your workplaces. Go around to the people in your life and get ready to share a hard word to hard people. These are people that you work with every day. People you may go to school with, people you hang around with in your life. They're your besties from high school, whatever. And you look at them and you're like, they're really nice people and they call themselves Christians. But you know if you really, really did some deep dive there, you really know they don't really follow Jesus. I mean, let's just get real. You, you might even t- convince yourself that they do in order for you not to have to share hard words with them. Oh, yeah, they know. No, they need to hear it from you. They need to hear it from me. Those people will never, ever catch Christianity from you. You have to share Words. The gospel contains words. It's the way of salvation. And if the people around you don't believe in Jesus, do not be surprised, especially if you've never shared Jesus with them. Like, don't be surprised if you don't share the word. You know, this is a it's a difficult mission. Hard words to a hard world. It's a hard thing to do. All people don't want to hear. Let's just be real. All people don't want to hear, hey, you're a hellbound sinner. <laughs> who wants to hear that, right? Who, who wants to engage someone who's practicing homosexuality and say, hey, you've got to repent and remain celibate for the rest of your life? Who wants to hear that, right? Who wants to hear that they're living a lukewarm Christianity that wants to make Jesus vomit them out of their mouth. <laughs> like, no one wants to hear that. No one wants to hear that there's nothing in the Bible that speaks to a churchless Christian. These are hard things. They may be difficult for some people to hear these truths. Let me set you up for what's going to happen if you do this. 
Everyone will not like you. Everyone's not going to like you. You okay with that? You see, you Christians, we've been freed from the slavery of man's approval. And if you're free, it's all right. It's going to be okay. Not everybody's going to like you. Some people are going to run from you. But for the sake of Christ, you are seeking God's approval, not man's approval. So you got to be okay with that. Out of the gate, you got to be all right with it. You cannot have this mentality, I've got to have everyone's approval. I hate it when people don't like me. Like if you have that, you're not ever going to share the hard word of God. But let me, let me make sure you understand something too. Yes, some people will run away from you. Yes, some people will not like you. But for those others who God has appointed by salvation, possibly through your words, they will bring life to them. People will run to you. Your Christianity, your real version of Christianity will become very attractive to them. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one fragrance from death to death to the other fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul said, as we share the fragrance of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the hard words, we share that fragrance, that aroma, to some, it will smell like death. Ugh, get that stuff out of here. I don't believe in that stuff. You're so closed-minded. It's so archaic. You're such a hater. Jesus is the only way. Get that stuff out of here. And for them, it brings death. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are truly seeking God, they are life to life. So you be ready for the response. God dictates that. You don't. That doesn't give you permission to be a jerk for Jesus. They go just, well, tell him whatever, tell it like it is, right? But what it does give us the, the ability to do is it speaks with confidence, not arrogance, but with confidence. And our proper balance when we share God's hard words to a hard world, it should be like John's saying here, it should be both bitter and sweet. It should contain both aspects of the world. Charles Spurgeon said that if you are all sugar, the world will just suck you down. If you are all vinegar, then the world will spit you out. So you have to be able to come in and share the bitterness of sin and judgment of the world. Bitterness of following your own way and doing what's right in your own eyes. You share the bitterness there, but you share the sweetness of Christ. Salvation, the way of life, all of his good designs, they're meant to give you life, not take it. So you, the proper balance is we share the bitterness of the word. And we also share the sweetness 
of the Word of God to our lost friends. The only way, as I said, to survive the days ahead is by standing strong in the Word. I pray for you. You need to pray for one another as these pressures come our way. And I pray that no one in here and falls away and caves under the pressure. Pray for people to eat, take and eat and ingest the Word of God. Maybe you need to pray about, God, who would you have me teach the Word to so I can help them, right? It's not just a prayer. It's an active thing to go, to go do. But something else you need to do is you need to pray for me that I don't cave under cultural pressure, that I don't succumb to the desire to have a big church and avoid jail. You need to pray for me that I just give you the Bible every single week. John uh, Piper, some of you guys know who John Piper is, he wrote an open letter to pastors that was super challenging to us in the pastorate, but I want to give you a glimpse into it so you just kind of know what we're processing here. He says this, Imagine that the divided states of America collapses first, Anarchy, then tyranny from the right or from the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines and prison and exile and martyrdom. Then ask yourself this Has my preaching and pastoring been developing real Christians? Christians who can sing on the scaffold, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Christians who will act like the believers in Hebrews 10, 34, who will joyfully accept the plundering of our property since you knew that you had a better possession in Christ. Have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and the worth of the Son of God? Are you raising up generations of those who say with Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Have you shown them that they're sojourners and exiles and that their citizenship is in heaven from which they await a savior? Do they feel in their bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or have you turned their attentions towards the strategies of America, politics, and self-preservation? Church, he says, pastors, show the people who God is and give them God every single Sunday. It's the greatest need that they have. Church, we, we need to be confident in a big God. We need to be nourished by God's word. And we need to be ready and able to share hard words to a hard world. Some of you are here today and... You've not yet given your life to Christ. This Bible is not sweet to you. It's not bitter to you. You don't, you don't understand it quite yet. You, you've not given your life to Christ. You might be a little skeptical here today. You might be someone who's here trying to earn the favor of God. Maybe he'll love me if I go to church. Maybe he'll forgive me. Maybe some of you grew up clothed in religiosity. You were church kid, but you've never actually given your life to Christ before. I want to quickly share with you the bittersweet gospel. The bittersweet gospel. It's bitter and sweet. The way the gospel is not 
Come to Jesus. He has a wonderful plan for your life. It's come to Jesus or you don't have life. The gospel is not invite Jesus into your heart. The gospel is your heart is wicked and it is corrupt and you need a heart transplant and only Jesus can give it to you. That's a radically different gospel. And until your own sin and your own judgment is bitter to you, Christ will never be sweet to you. You, you understand the bitterness of your own sin, that you deserve God's judgment, not his grace and mercy, but instead he gave you a way, a way out, a way to him through believing in the life and the death. And this life, that's what God required. He lived it for you, then he died the death that you deserved on the cross. And for all who would be willing to do this today, to give up on their own way, to give up on their own views, their own philosophies, their own opinions of the world, and submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will taste the sweetness of salvation today. So I hope he does that today. If that's you and you want to talk to somebody, you can Mark it on your box, your connect card there. Come talk to us on the way out. We'd love to talk with you about Jesus Christ. If you're a guest, a reminder on the way out, man, do your connect card if you have a moment to do that. You've got ways to respond through giving, connecting to groups, all of those different ways. Man, thank you guys for, again, listening today. Uh, Man, let's stand and let's worship.